Father, we love you, your scriptures. We love to study and sit at your feet and pray for the just transforming power of the Holy Spirit to be working in us, through us. So God, be glorified as we give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, I'm going to read this text to you this morning, and then we're going to dive into it. So settle in. Here we go. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, shall say, the Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey, the colt, and put them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches for the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out of the temple, Hosanna, the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? Do you hear what they are saying? There's there's the beef, okay? There's the problem. Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you ever read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out to the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree... But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. It was spring of 2002, and I was 16 years old and had gone down to this place called Carmen Sedan in Mexico, where we served as a bunch of teenagers at an orphanage. We would work on projects, and we would uh, help with just repair. Um, As a 16-year-old, I'm sure we were pretty much useless, but we did our best that we could, all right? When we ran out of work, we filled potholes. I'm I'm not even kidding. Once tasked, commissioned with cleaning up a dump. 
So that was, that was my spring break. Well, on the way home from this spring break trip, uh, we'd drive the bus down from Southern Oregon. And on the way back, the incentive was if you went to go help at the orphanage, you also got to go to Disneyland and hang out at Huntington Beach for the day. So that was enough incentive to convince my parents to pay 200 bucks to send me down on this trip. And on this particular day, we went to Huntington Beach. Um, and anybody, anybody been to Huntington Beach before? Huntington Beach is a pretty like busy, happening, cool place. And as a teenager, we're very excited uh, as Oregonians from this little hick town to go hang out at the beach. This particular day, the city was a buzz. I mean, they could hardly find a place to park. And there was cheering and horns that were honking and people were shouting. And mind you, it's March in Southern California. It's not like the locals were out partying at the beach. They're not from Oregon. They're cold in March, okay? They don't hang out at the beach then. And so we make our way to see what the hubbub is and what's going on. And lo and behold, 2002, Arnold Schwarzenegger was campaigning in Huntington Beach. And you can just see this crowd, sea of kids. There was about 90 of us, two buses had gone down, just ton, and we want to see and get in on the action because this is the Terminator, right? I mean, this is the soon-to-be governator, and we are thrilled. Is he really as short as they say he is? Are his biceps twice the size of Brett Anderson's? Like, come on now. Man, who is this guy? What is he about? And we joined in, not because we were into politics. We could care less, although many that were there that day were very hopeful that the celebrity governor could turn California around, a task that I don't know that can be done. (laughs) Jabbing them. (laughs) All right? And they're thrilled, and they line the streets, some just to see him, to get close to him, Maybe some of that Arnold sweat will come flying off and you can bottle it in a jar and sell it down the road someday. And you could sense it. There was excitement in California. There was excitement that day as they lined the streets. So when I enter in with that story, you can see how it definitely ties in to what we just read. Here comes not Arnold, not the governor, but Jesus And if you read John's account, which is a little different than the synoptics, the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they all follow some of the same tendencies and way of storytelling. Some things are in different places, and just like an eyewitness account, you might get a different angle of what was going on or happening. But in John's account, uh, we're told that Jesus had previously raised um, Lazarus from the dead. And what was being done in podunk Galilee areas, the miracles, uh, people weren't really paying too much attention to Jesus in the city. But now as Jesus had come closer to the city and he had raised this man from the dead, in fact, Lazarus became a risk, became a risk, not not to Jesus, but to the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they wanted to stomp out this Jesus movement. And he was a living, breathing physical testimony that John writes in there, they wanted to kill him as well as Jesus. And so people are hearing all about this movement that is coming to town, and the city is abuzz, not just with, oh, maybe a political figure, although the movement of Jesus is highly politically charged, as we're going to see this morning. Oh, 
gosh, why did I come here and invite my friends today? He is a king coming in to the town. And for the first time publicly, we're going to have to backtrack just one story to tie this all together, he's receiving that title. What do I mean? If you look at chapter 20, the part Michael left out last week, verse 29 through 33, it flows right into the story. Listen, as they went out of Jericho, okay, so there's the city not too far away from Jerusalem. So they leaving Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men. Uh, it's, I believe Mark's gospel says actually one of them, his name is Bartholomew or blind Bart. These two blind men are there and one of them is begging. And it says, behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David. Son of David. This, this line is key, and it's going to play throughout the scripture this morning. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. Why? Is it because of the Son of David comment? Quite, quite possibly. Is it because Jesus doesn't have time for these men? that they were actually bothering him, that they were on a mission. Jesus was to get to Jerusalem and he couldn't bother himself or slow down to deal with the blind men that needed his mercy. But they kept shouting. Jesus called them and said, I want you to look at this. What do you want me to do for you? I mean, come on, Jesus. They're blind. (laughs) You're a miracle worker. They know about you but he's forcing the issue with them, their neediness. What do you want me to do? And Jesus, I don't like this wording in the ESV, has pity. The better wording is much like with the rich young ruler, has compassion or is looking on them with love. Touched their eyes and immediately recovered their sight and followed him. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to talk about in connecting these stories together. And we might be about 10 minutes longer today. I do apologize for that. But what we're seeing here is a sequence of Jesus' entry, then he moves to the temple, and then a parable. But these blind men, they are setting up the stage. Every single one of the synoptics, all three of them intentionally put this story right before Jesus moves into Jerusalem, triumphantly entering the city, receiving the praise of the people, moving further into the very temple that was so sacred to the Israelites and establishing and putting himself in that spot. And we have to understand why this story is here. It's multifaceted because there's three things taking place in it. Yes, you have this miraculous healing of those that are blind having their eyes opened to who Jesus is. That one's fun. Maybe you got to dig a little bit for it, but it's, it's there. You also have this moment, this moment where they publicly cry out, son of David, son of David. Those are dangerous words in that culture. Do you know why? David was the king who sat on the throne in Israel. 
And it was David's sons and grandsons who were to be sitting on the throne in Israel at all times. That was the lineage. They were to be in power. And it's talked about in the Old Testament that there would be a king who would come and his throne would reign forever, his kingdom forever. This statement, Jesus, son of David, is incredibly politically charged because it's an outward expression of what the disciples were inwardly feeling. Peter had already made this comment, but it was private. Don't tell anyone. You're right. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that you're waiting. I'm the son of David, but I need you to hold off on that because Jesus knows what the disciples know in this moment. And it's going to force the issue of his kingship in Israel in which the world is going to have to look at Jesus and they're either going to crown him or they're going to kill him. But that's what they're left with in this moment. Those words, son of David, are very important because it tells us a little bit of what people thought about who Jesus is, was in that time. Not only that, but if you remember two weeks ago, I taught on the rich young ruler. And he came to Jesus like this, Jesus, I'm a pretty good guy. My moral conduct has been very honorable. I'm established, I'm financially fine, and people like me. What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? He's kind of got, in my positioning, this mentality of, I want to hear from you, I want to know who you are. He's, He's a little bit standoffish, though. And I say that because this, Jesus tells him, you've come full. You've come with anything and everything somebody could have in this life. Why don't you go get rid of it and come and follow me? Whoa, Jesus. I can't do that. Then Jesus went into this whole teaching section, which Michael uncovered last week, of the first will be last and the last will be first. And then this story kind of bookends it because unlike the rich young ruler who had it all, and left with nothing, you have these blind beggars who have nothing and leave with all. See, they come in this position, which is very different. Jesus, have mercy on us. We need something from you. Their palms up. We receive from you. They're not pushing back on, I can't go and do that. There's a lot of things I'd love to massage out and nuance in there, but you kind of have to plug that one away and think about this today. How am I? What does this look like in my life? Am I coming to Jesus? Why am I coming to Jesus? What does it look like to receive from him? And what does he want to do in my life? And then when we consider that question, we have to begin to ask ourselves, what kind of king is this Jesus that actually sends the prominent, wealthy, important person away, but then these blind beggars, they're going to come and they're going to follow him. And he says, they're on my team. Jesus is absolutely pitting these stories against one another, saying, this is the kind of people my kingdom is about. This is the kind of people that are following me and I'm inviting them in to walk with me. Those that are marginalized and pushed out, those that listen, rich or poor, affluent or down and out, recognize their deep need for me. Rich young ruler couldn't. These men, in the most ironic sense, saw it. We need Jesus. And they cry, son of David, son of David, and they're declaring who he is. 
So as we look at this section of scripture, we see king, we see temple, and we see the fig tree. We have these three sections and one mission of Jesus. Will they receive or will they reject who he is? The crowds, they too, like the blind men, son of David, son of David, Hosanna, Lord in the highest, save us. And so what does Jesus do? He comes triumphantly riding in on that donkey. There's just so much there. You can listen to past teachings. We've taught on this section several times. So we're moving through that quickly as he prophetically fulfills the role of the scripture of riding in on this lowly, humble beast. He comes into town and people are worshiping, praising, rejoicing that their king is here. Now, what does he do? This is beautiful. Jesus immediately moves in to the temple. Now, for those of you that don't know, one of the ways you can actually see the storyline of the Bible is through this theme of temple. What do I mean by that? Well, we know that the cosmos that God had created, the Psalms, they talk about it being uh, basically the throne room of God. Okay, so he's ruling, he's reigning, and they speak of God in this high and lofty language. Well, then God creates heaven and the earth, or he like separates the, you know, the skies and the firmament and the ground, and he makes that there. And you can read the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. And in so doing, on day 6, he creates man. So you've got God, who is king, who is ruler. He then makes man, and he commissions Adam and Eve, he commissions both of them to do what? To go create, to multiply, to make, to do what basically God has done, to take the raw material of what God has made and to go flourish in society. But one of the things that theologians talk about that God did is when he created the Garden of Eden, it was a microcosm or basically this small-scale throne room in which heaven kissed earth, in which the presence of God dwelt with man. Temple, if you want to just think of it in this way, is not necessarily these four walls in a church. This is not, this is not temple. Okay? Temple is the place in which God's presence dwelt. It's a beautiful picture. Beautiful picture. That's why when Adam and Eve decided, we don't need you, God, we'll do things on our own volition, we'll do things in our own will and on our own terms, what did they lose? Yeah, they got booted out of the garden. There's still some pretty gorgeous places in the world today that are garden-esque, right? Like, anybody been to Hawaii? I mean, come on, right? Amazingly beautiful and flourishing and all kinds of uh, beautiful greenery and all the rest. What did they lose? They lost temple. They lost presence. Oh, no, not permanently. Through sacrifice, we could see even Cain and Abel came to a place that was set aside in which they would meet with God. Now, if you follow the storyline of Scripture, what you see is this deal with humanity and God is a reconciliation of all things, of getting man back right with God, God redeeming, rescuing Humans, as well as the earth that is fallen and broken. And through the lineage of Abraham, down through Moses, and on through to David, we, we begin to see God working, and early on, let's say in Exodus, God is restoring this relationship between him and man. He creates tabernacle, 
or what was going to be a temple someday, but it was the place in which God's Shekinah glory, it dwelt. It was the place in which Moses would come and meet with the very presence of God. Like, I thought God was everywhere. Yes, but listen, in this specific sense, it's almost like a Wi-Fi hotspot. Like, that's the place you want to be to draw close to get the best reception. If you're thinking temple, we want to be close to God. In Israel, we read that God tabernacled, or he went with them. Okay? This whole idea is how can we be close? How can we be brought back right with God? And ultimately, not David, but Solomon is commissioned to build this temple in which the glory of God dwells. There's the destruction of it, the rebuilding of it. All that's to say is the temple is incredibly important. Incredibly important. It wasn't just a theological center. It was an ethical center in which Israel, because they had temple before they had kings. They had law before they had David or Saul. And it was the place in which this word of God was to flow out. It's the place where they even collected offering and giving and dispersion of the money to others. Okay, this was an incredibly important place. It was not just a religious place, but it was sort of this all-of-life, all-encompassing place. So here comes Jesus into town. And what does he do? He walks into the temple, and he begins to rearrange the furniture. Now, once in my life, I was 17, and we pulled a prank in which we broke into somebody's house who was out of town, and we rearranged all their furniture. (laughs) We thought it was hilarious. Little did we know we probably could have got arrested. It was also the same night I did get a phone call from the cops for doing some other shady stuff, but (laughs) those, those stories we'll hold off on. Don't worry. I erased the message before my parents heard it, and I took care of it, Okay. this guy. He's horrible. He needs Jesus. So, so, gosh, that was a huge sidetrack. Jesus rearranges furniture. Um, You don't go into somebody's house and rearrange the furniture unless it's your house. Even today, take some of the most prominent churches, prominent meaning, let's just go with not prominent, but largest churches in America, whether you like them or not. Okay, maybe you think uh, Osteen's Church boasting 50,000 members, or you think Craig Rochelle Life Church with online membership like 100,000 people. Uh, They might even invite like a political figure to come in and speak, but I'll tell you one thing that political figure won't do is they're not going to go in and rearrange the furniture. They're like, hands off, don't touch that. That's none of our business. Why? Separation of church and state, we can go down through a lot of other things, but they're like, that is not our realm. But Jesus comes in and rearranges the furniture. What's he saying? My house. What's he saying? Something even more specific. He's going to declare in discourse later on, in talking about the destruction of the temple, and even relating his own body, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. What does John 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word is God. And what? He came and tabernacled. Hear the language. Tabernacled. What's the tabernacle? The presence of God. He came and tabernacled and dwelt among us. Jesus is doing so much 
in this act. And it's not just because of the dirty little practice of exchanging money and ripping some people off. It's way, way, way bigger than that. What do you mean? Well, he goes in there and establishes his authority. But then moving beyond that, he casts out all of the animal sacrifices that were to be there. You know, to be right with God, there had to be shedding of blood. And what travelers were doing is they were coming far distances by foot or on camel or donkey or whatever. And they were getting there to then worship God for Passover week. And they would bring their money with them. And because money was, you know, all in like crypto back then, like it is now or going that way, they had to exchange their Bitcoin for some Ethereum. Yeah, we're not there yet, are we, Redeemers? They had to take their local currency and they had to then change it into the currency that would be used in that. So it wasn't bad or inherently evil or wrong with what they were doing. There may have been some shady practices in it. Why were they doing this? To then buy an unblemished lamb to do sacrifices in order to be forgiven or have their sins atoned for. But what does Jesus do? He kicks all the animals out. He makes that not possible. And then he just plants himself for the next week. It's going to take us several. The next week, and he just plants himself in the center of the temple. He's talking. He's preaching. Who's going to be the sacrifice? Where are the sacrifices? This is absolutely symbolic. This is huge because Jesus is demonstrating the way that you've been doing things. It's not working. And I am going to be this sacrificial lamb. He's just going and he's standing there and he's bridging the gap. Just like if we look back to the garden where there was then the flaming sword so they could not enter back in to eat and they could not eat of the tree of the fruit that would continue to give them life. Jesus is now saying, there is a way, there is a way to come to me and it's still by the sword, but I'm going to take that sword for you. This is, this is what temple is. It's the presence of God with his people. Paul picks up on this, doesn't he? We are the temple. Peter picks up on this. He says, you are living stones built on the cornerstone, jointly fit together, built upon, stacked upon one another. And it's because of what Jesus has done. And this is how we are to understand this idea of temple and what Jesus is doing and moving through in here. Let me just read a few things and talk through a few things in here and then we'll hit some application and get you on your way. He, Jesus judges, cleanses, and creates this path, this new way. When he goes into the temple and he says, my house is not to be this den of thieves or place of robbers. He's quoting Old Testament there. Predicted that this was going to happen and he pushes them out. My house is to be a house of prayer. He didn't just go into the temple and say, let's have a seminar. He took some action. He is bold. You see, one of the things that we see in here is Jesus takes action, and he wants to take action in your life. You can go to five seminars on ways to deal with all kinds of junk in your life right now, or how to fix problems, or how to get better, or how to whatever, fill in the blank. And Jesus doesn't simply just come in and give a seminar, though he does teach a lot coming up here real soon, but he takes actual action. He gets right after the problem and he pinpoints it and he highlights it and he says, this is what needs to happen in your life. 
just like he did with the woman at the well in John 5 when she's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, I know, you got like five and the man you're sleeping, I mean, living with right now, he's not your husband. And she's like, oh my goodness, this guy must be a prophet. Or he just knew the town rumor mill, you know, one or the other, small village. He's a prophet. He knows all these things about me. And he pinpoints the problem. And Jesus gets to come into your life as he rides into town on the donkey, sets up shop in the temple, and he says, oh, I'm a political figure, but I'm far more than that. I'm king. I am the king. And he gets to rearrange the furniture in your life. Jesus gets to rearrange the furniture in Redeemers. He did it last week. We got new chairs. They're not as comfortable, but they wipe down and you don't have donut butt anymore. So, that's a win. Jesus gets to rearrange the furniture in your life. What does that mean? There's a lot of things in the scriptures that don't align with culture right now. What so many of us want to do is we want to take culture and make it line up and make it so palatable and make it align with culture, scriptures and culture together, and it's just not going to happen. Or contrast culture. It's going to look a little bit different. Are you going to rearrange the furniture in here? Or is he going to rearrange the furniture in here? We don't get to come over this. We come under this. His scripture, his lordship, his kingship. That's what Jesus does. It's this commentator. His last name is France. He said, I know it's hard to trust a guy whose last name's France, right? <laughs> of our usual description. I don't even get the French jokes. Of our usual description, the cleansing of the temple that it misses much of the significance of this event. It is the sequel to and culmination of the deliberate symbolic entry to the city. We see how the Messiah stakes his claim in the central shrine of his people. It is important that Jesus came to the temple and acted there as one who had authority, even though this greatly displeased those who were responsible for the day-to-day administration of the place of worship. Look, if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to upset other Christians, right? If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to upset other Christians, religious people. Because you're going to go left when they think so hard because of what they've incorporated in their lives is right. You're going to show love in places that they've already made these hard stances and can't even comprehend how on earth you can show love to certain people in certain ways. We'll dive into this stuff later on in discipleship. I've got the red countdown going on now. Understand this. Jesus is the ultimate Christian, and he offended all the quote unquote religious leaders of that day. He overthrew it. This is what Jesus does, and he says, I am the temple. And then he goes on his way, and he curses the fig tree. And rather than a five minute discourse from me, I'll just read Spurgeon's words on this. There were many trees with neither leaves nor fruit. And these were not cursed. This tree was cursed because it professed to have fruit, but it did not. Enough said on that. Easy interpretation. Israel, they were to have fruit, the fruit that was bringing and welcoming other people in, showing them what it meant to walk and follow after God. They did not produce that fruit. They put up barriers. There's going to be all these woes that get listed here soon. They're actually leading people further into destruction than closer to God. When I read this this week, I thought, what barriers does Redeemers put up? 
to welcoming people in. We've already established it's not the way Michael and I dress anymore, right? We're horrible dressers. <laughs> you can be the worst dressed person in here and you're still worse than us. Or excuse me, we're worse than you. We'll just, we'll, just, we'll just let that one hang out there. I mean, the white sun is looking snazzy today, so he just put me to shame, okay? Here, here's the deal, though. But that can, be, that can be a hindrance. It's just thinking, like, practicality. Are we welcoming? Not just friendly. Are we welcoming? Are we loving? Are we kind? Even when we don't see eye to eye politically or in certain hot button issues, can we sit down over the table and have a meal? Redeemers, let's do a really good job of not just being friendly, but being welcoming, bringing people in, inviting them to share life with us. Let's not profess to have fruit. We're a community church and we're all about community. That is so true. But it can't just be true in word. It may be true in deed. I'm going to finish with an N.T. Wright quote because that's just phenomenal. This is the launching of God's renewed people through the inauguration of the king on the cross. Jesus is portrayed any, excuse me, Jesus is portrayed any the gospels as a one-man apocalypse. When you think apocalypse, you think walking dead, end of the world. Apocalypse just simply means unveiling. So he's a one-man unveiling. The place where, this is Jesus, heaven and earth meet. The place where and the means by which people come and find themselves renewed and restored as the people of one God. The place where power is redefined, turned upside down, and perhaps the right way up. I love that the blind men came saying, son of David, son of David. They had hope that this Jesus was making what went wrong in the world, that he could make it new. Their blindness, unnatural, not supposed to be that way. And they're just coming on this physical basis saying, Lord, help us, give us sight, have mercy on us, this hope and this renewal. And what we see is a tidbit of heaven in Jesus in that moment. We see heaven kissing earth and he's saying, I'm setting this right like it was in the garden. We're all trying to get back to the garden, whether it's through the American dream and prosperity or through sexual pleasure and fantasy, or it's through power and establishing ourselves as an important person. People have all sorts of methods and means in which they're trying to become significant and important and get back to the garden where they find themselves having value and worth. And in Jesus and Jesus alone is it met and welcomed whether you're important or insignificant, whether you beg and you're blind or you have everything. And it's in Jesus and Jesus alone that there's hope in this life and in the age to come. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you came and tabernacled and dwelt among us. Thank you that in John, you told your disciples that you had to go, but you're sending the Holy Spirit to convict us, to indwell us, to fill us, to give us new life, to walk and live in the now but not yet. Pray today that we'd let you rearrange the furniture in our hearts, rearrange the furniture in our church, 
that you would work in and through us and amongst us. Just give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.